The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the plot of thunder and rock and roll. And we are all about the rock today, starting with the much loved and mostly funny Duff McKagan. Joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan. Uh, still in Hawaii. Uh, if you hear the waves crashing. Listen, I hope you're doing well. I think you're out uh, somewhere. You're out and about doing something, aren't you? I uh, hope you're doing well. hope you everybody out there is doing well. Listen, I should have thought first before I challenged death to a pillow fight. I wasn't prepared for the Reaper cushions. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Ah, that was a good one. <laughs> Thank you, Dufsky. And uh, that's amazing. From one rock and roll legend, we turn to another and one of my all-time favorite singers, Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden, returns to talk as Jericho. He's got a new solo album out today, almost 20 years in the making. It's his seventh solo release, and it's called The Mandrake Project. Guitarist and producer Roy Z was back in the mix for this one. And like any Bruce-involved project, there's so much more than just the album. It's a comic book, too. The first issue dropped in January. The second is just a couple weeks away. It'll be a 12-episode series by the time it's all released. And, of course, he'll be touring. He's got a solo band together with a couple of new players because Roy Z uh, can't tour with him this time. But guitarist Philip Nasland and Chris DeClerc will join Dave Morena, Assyria, and my friend Tanya O'Callaghan playing bass for Bruce Dates start April 15th in California. Ticket info at themandrakeproject.com. Bruce talks about the making of both the Mandrake Project album and comic here today on Talk is Jericho. He talks about the legend of the Mandrake, what inspired the story. He explains why it took almost 20 years to do this record and the huge role that Iron Maiden's If Eternity Should Fail from the Book of Souls record played in this record. He's got some funny stories from the making of the Rain on the Graves video. You can check that out now on YouTube. And he shares a peek at the live show set list. I can't wait. Bruce uh, also talks about his experience doing John Lord from Deep Purple's Concerto live with an 80-piece orchestra all over the world, and he reveals a little bit of Iron Maiden's future plans. So here we go, one of my favorite Talk is Jericho guests back again here, Bruce Dickinson and the Mandrake Project, right now on Talk is Jericho. Back with the returning Bruce Dickinson. I think this is your fifth time on the show, Bruce. Yeah, so I'm sort of a lifer here, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, I got a green jacket for you I'm going to send to you that you can wear for the next time. Uh, a green jacket? Why, why is that? I think, like, uh, when you're on Sunday Night Live five times, they give you a green jacket, like uh, the five-timer club. 
Oh, is that oh, is that like sort of like uh, like like winning the open or something where you get a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, you get a blazer or something at the end yeah. of it, yeah, golf or something, whatever the hell yeah. it is that we're talking yeah. about. But yeah. uh, but there's so much to talk about here, and obviously, first on the list, the Mandrake Project. Now, I must tell you, uh, in the pantheon of things that I've learned from Bruce Dickinson and Iron Maiden, I learned what a Mandrake was from uh, the Seventh Son of the Seventh Son record on Moonchild. Hear the Mandrake scream. Yeah, fun and the, the follow-up from Harry Potter. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But explain what is a mandrake? It's like a uh, like a mythical, magical tree root. Yeah, I mean the the mandrake is a root, and it was when you pull it out of the ground, it looks to uh, some people like a human being. Ah, so it has like two arms, two legs, the right kind of root. So it acquired a uh, a reputation that it had kind of like occult or mystical powers. It is, in fact extremely hallucinogenic so if you if you make uh, if you make a potion out of mandrake you will trip out and it, depending <laughs> upon how much you take it will either well this goes back to the bible where rachel uses a mandrake to seduce her sister's lover uh in the old testament so therefore it's kind of like uh it's like a biblical date rape drug <laughs> and then moving forward to the middle ages the mandrake was reputed by occultists to uh, emit a scream when it was pulled out of the ground, and the scream would kill a human being. So there's this elaborate ritual whereby you've got a dog, and you tied the dog's tail to the mandrake, and then you put earmuffs on, and then you kick the dog up the butt, and then the dog pulled the mandrake out. The dog died, and it was a, it's like, okay, come on, it's a plant, dude. You know, you just go down the garden center, you know. So that was the mandrake. It had all these alleged occult powers, but of course it was a hallucinogenic. But it was a very dangerous hallucinogenic because if you take too much of it, it'll actually stop your heart. Ah, okay. I mean, they're quite not difficult to grow, but they're quite picky about where they grow. One of the places they, they grew often, it seems, was underneath gibbets of people who were hung. Really? So, yeah. So, so often, you know, the, the, the allegation or the legend was that the mandrake would would grow very well under the gibbets and whether or not they did or whether or not they didn't one of the reasons why that probably passed into folklore was because when people are hung 50 percent of the time they ejaculate at the, at the point when they're next ah. um, it's just like a reflex action and i learned this from a forensic pathologist who told me because we, I, I did my podcast on the psycho schizo espresso thing, and we got this forensic pathologist, and we were talking about autoerotic <laughs> association, yeah. right? And he said, "Well, of course, there, of course, there is a link, you know." Yeah, he said, because you know that most people, when they, you know, when they strangle themselves, they actually come when they're dead. Hmm. I went, no kidding! Wow, that's weird. What a weird reflex of the body. But th so the the idea was was the mandrakes would somehow be nourished by the you know the droppings and would acquire more power this is all weird shit isn't it but i mean it's uh, it's actually there's elements of it which are true and elements of it which are wishful thinking for certain kinds of people you know so why did you title the record the mandarin project because it sounds a little bit mysterious it does what i wanted was uh, uh a title which by the way came at the end of the whole process so we'd recorded the album it was all mixed it was done it was finished Mm -hmm. And the same with the, the comic. The comic was was well underway, and I didn't have a title for either of them. The original title to the record back in 2014, when we started saying, hey, let's do another record, was going to be If Eternity Should Fail, which is uh, an episode from Doctor Strange. But 
that had moved on. I, you know, Maiden had, had recorded it, so I, I didn't want to call it that anymore. And in any case, I had this comic going alongside it. So I wanted something that sounded a little bit mysterious, a little bit like it was some weird clandestine government project or something like, like that. So the something project. And I thought, well, that might work for a, an album as well. Hey, the Alan Parsons project, but not like that. <laughs> you know, the Bruce Dickinson project. I mean, it just sounds kind of dull, doesn't it? But calling something the Mandrake project, it ha has people intrigued, like, hey, what, what's that all about? What, what, what does that mean? You know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, inquire within. Well, and, al and also, too, like I said, there's a link to if you're a real hardcore Maiden fan. I just love the idea of bringing back this Mandrake idea. But I also love the fact of bringing back the Bruce Dickinson solo career because, uh, especially with Roy Z, I mean, the, the this, this discography is incredible. And it's been a long time coming. It's been almost 20 years. Yeah. But you mentioned you started this in 14. Why 10 years to release this epic? We didn't have much time to get frustrated uh, because. You know, 2014, we started writing it, although as some of the songs actually predate that as well. One, one, one track is like, you know, nearly 25 years old. Mm -hmm. But so we had all this stuff kicking around and we thought, well, let's put it all together and see what new stuff we've got. So I had, a, you know, half a dozen songs. We did some demos and, and some were kind of like quite cool. Some were like pretty unfinished. And But we left it in 2014. Oh, I'm just going to go and record the Maiden album, which I did, The Book of Souls. And then at the end of the album, I was diagnosed with throat cancer. So, oops, that was like a year out of everything. And then luckily I came back and uh, everything seemed to be working. So then we had catch up with Maiden for like a year and a half, the best part of two years because of the lost time that we hadn't had, you know. Right. So no sooner had I gone, you know what, ah, it's been great. I must just go back and start the process of doing this album again. And then COVID happened. Oh. And that was three years. So you add all that lot up. And by the time I got back together with Roy, it was like, now let me see. Seven years ago, I walked out of your living room. And uh, where were we exactly? You know. <laughs> yeah. So the album was went forward. The album was actually finished pretty much a year ago. So, And it's even more frustrating when you've actually got the album finished. You're like, oh, oh, come on, let's yeah, get yeah. it out. These days, unfortunately, it doesn't work. One of the reasons being is that the double vinyl gatefold version of the album, which is actually, for me, is just like, is a thing of beauty. I mean, the, the, the whole, everything, the design of the package, we put a lot of, a lot of effort into that. But the, that requires such a huge amount of lead time mm -hmm. and preparation and everything else, because it turns out there's like a world shortage of vinyl and then, yeah. you know, everything else. So in order to get, you know, physical product made, and a lot of, you know, Maiden fans, a lot of my fans do like having a, a, a physical piece of something. So, so to come up with a really cool package and, and to do everything properly the way we wanted it, because of course the comic was running in parallel to this, you know, that's with Zed too. They're pretty hot on their visuals and their, their, their packaging as well. So that both of those two things running in parallel. Now the comics already first issues was released on January 17 and the second issue will be out about three weeks after the album, and the third issue, three months after that, and so on and so forth, but 12 issues. So it's a three-year project, that. So that's ongoing. So Mandrake Project worked for both as a title. That's what people don't understand. We had the same problem with our last record when you're trying to get the vinyl. It's like, well, we'll be ready in like eight months or whatever. You're like, what? Like, why does it take so long to yeah. make produce records? Because people, like you said, people want that product to sign. They like having it and holding it. 
but it's hard it's hard to manufacture in this day and age yeah no absolutely and and the the irony of all that is that the demand for vinyl is uh accelerating really really a lot there is a fair bit of demand you know built up the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If you go back to starting your relationship with Roy Z, because he's been a great partner for you, I think back to Balls to Picasso is when you first started working with him. How, how did you end up tying up with him because he was a name that we hadn't ever really heard of before and he's so synonymous now with bruce dickinson solo so z and i met up uh funnily enough in the the producer of uh balls to picasso a guy called shay baby and shay knew his band the tribe of gypsies and said hey you know i I was just wanting to meet a buddy of mine this incredible guitar player roy z so i met him round at shay's house one one afternoon we just headed off and uh he played me some stuff and I said, hey, we should write some songs together. So lo and behold, we wrote like four or five tracks and they all went on the record. At the time, I didn't realize how capable he was in terms of production and stuff like that because I'd only just met him. Mm. So that album was finished by, by Shay and probably was not as heavy as it should have been. And so one of the projects we are involved in right now is going back to all of my catalog and either remixing them, either for the purpose of doing an Atmos mix of everything, or in the case of uh, Balls to Picasso, making it more like the record it should have been when it was first conceived. So there's a lot of guitars that are not actually on the record. And in other words, they were recorded, but they weren't used. A lot of heavy guitars. We've also gone in with a mm. composer called Anthony Taioli, who happens to have a library of like weird, funky Brazilian percussion music and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. So we've been putting all kinds of stuff like the Gods of War, that track, you know, we've been putting all these kind of like weird ethnic instruments on at the beginning to make it sound really different. You know, so, so th- th- that's a, a project that's ongoing. I mean, I'm just going in to do the Atmos mix of Skunk Works mm. in a couple of weeks as well, which should be, uh, should be cool. And that sounds really good. The remixes sound great. Jack and Dino, who's the original producer has been, quite involved with it and uh, loving the sound of it, you know, you know, without detracting from the original, which was good anyway. But anyway, so Roy and I, he went off and got a deal for Tribe of Gypsies, which was great because they're an incredible band. But I don't know why, you know, we all know there are, there are loads of great bands in the world that, that should have done things, but, but Better, for yeah. whatever reason didn't, and half of it's to do with the, the music business or industry or whatever you want to call it. You know? mm-hmm. After Skunk Works, that project finished and the, the curtain came down on that. Well, Roy actually got back in touch with me and said, hey, what are you up to? And I said, well, as of this precise moment, uh, nothing. <laughs> and he did the, you know, it's an old cliche, but he played me some demos down the phone. And um, I wrote down the first verse of Accident of Birth and the chorus and thought, yeah, that's kind of cool. And the next day I was in LA. I just got on a plane and went straight out there. And we wrote like seven songs in about 10 days, demoed them, and then came back 
and did some more, and then boom, that was the album, Accident of Birth. At the time, like, like it was such a, uh, like you said, so heavy because you had been doing some cool stuff, and then you reunite with with Adrian and, and with Roy, and Accident of Birth comes out. That was such a, I feel it was almost a resurgence for your solo career because combined with Chemical Wedding, both those records are so fucking heavy and so memorable in so many ways. Did that kind of give a, a new lease for your solo career? Because the 90s were a tough time for all hard rock, heavy metal guys. Yeah, I mean, the the issue with those records really was, um, you know, finding a, a label that had the clout mm-hmm. to actually promote them. And it wasn't really maybe the best labels to be on, but didn't have much much of a choice. But the, the quality of the records was really good. I mean, Accident of Birth, I love that record because it kind of put everything back on the map. Mm-hmm. Chemical Wedding, I think, moved the map it really moved sound and everything into a a whole new dimension i think that record you know without blowing smoke up our own butt i mean i think that record actually profoundly affected quite a lot of people in terms of its sound it's it's you know darkness and everything i'm a chemical wedding yeah so it was a real uh, i hate to use the word progression because it always sounds like a cliche but it you, you could really see that accident of birth was slightly more conventional than Chemical Wedding, but Chemical Wedding took it to another level. And then um, the phone rings and I get asked to rejoin Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. You know, I ran that one past everybody in the band, not the Iron Maiden band, the, the my touring band, Roy and everybody. And they were all like, yeah, man, you've got to go do it. The world needs Iron Maiden. I went, mm-hmm. okay, all right. I said, but, you know, that means we, we're probably going to be not doing this for a while, you know, because I'm, I'm going to be just swept off by the current and just swept away in, in in maiden world but we did have tyranny of souls to do as well that was still there as a kind of an obligation we did that in between you know in between our maiden tours effectively in fact i remember writing the the words to quite a few of the songs that we'd written we were in japan with with maiden and you are getting up at stupid o'clock in the morning because of jet lag <laughs> i was i took, just put a head put headphones on and just walked around listening to the demos with a notepad, walking around Tokyo with the sun, sunrise coming up. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's the, the lyrics to The Power of the Sun was, was written like at five in the morning, walking around the streets of Tokyo. So yeah, we do that. And then I returned back to LA and, and did, did the vocals, and that was it. So Tyranny of Souls is a, was a, another interesting record because it wasn't as um, focused and as Chemical Wedding. But at the same time, it's got some really beautiful, like little sidetracks on it. Like, um, you know, Navigate the Seas of the Sun is a beautiful song, you know. So it's a real little sleeper gem, that record. And because we had no way of promoting it, it just came out and, and, and that was it. At the continuation of that one. Um, so the new record, I think you can see as a basically kind of like a summing up of, of all three of those records all put together on the new one, but with a few twists and turns as well. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
Quick question for you, then we'll get back to the Magic Project. There's a lot to talk about. When you're talking about getting the call to go back to Maiden and you're doing Chemical Wedding, did you suggest bringing Adrian back with you? Because you guys had kind of re- reunited at that point. Yeah, I mean, the, it was always my, if I was going to come back, it seemed absolutely ri- ridiculous that, that Adrian wouldn't come back. The whole process of, of getting back together was so sort of like, I don't know, it was so Byzantine. I mean, I found it quite comical that, you know, the, 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 it's like, no, no, you can't, you can't meet each other in a coffee shop. We have to, we have to meet each other in a secret location with a secret sign and do this. I'm like, oh, come on, you know, really? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I've seen him in the shower, dude. I know what goes on. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned before, uh, if eternity should fail, which is on this record. Yeah. I would like to hear the story about how it was kind of obviously used as the centerpiece for book of souls because it kicks the record off obviously it kicked the show off after your your mentioned uh t- tongue cancer uh, recovery you start the show on top of the drum riser singing acapella which was one of the coolest f-ing moments how did that come about i actually played him uh, uh about four or five of the tracks that are on the current album and said uh, hey if you fancy using any of these just um give me a shout and so he picked that one. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, it was going to be the title track, but hey, what the heck? You know, I don't know when I'm going to get to record this album because obviously I could see Book of Souls and then touring and then touring. And I thought, well, it might be another three or four years before I get a chance to actually record and maybe promote another album. So in the meantime, hey, if somebody wants to put this track on a Maiden record, yeah, go right ahead. So, I mean, the, the, the demo that we did, the opening vocal, was done in Roy Z's living room. That's the vocal that's on the Maiden record, you know, the little um, intro with the, the drone keyboard and then the, but, you know, that's me playing a little keyboard and that, that figure. What I wanted was this weird kind of like Ennio Morricone, sort of like Tarantino-esque beginning to it. So the idea was to have, we would replace that keyboard with mariachi trumpets. So go, <laughs> which, like weirdness <laughs> yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mentioned mariachi's trumpets to Steve and it, you know, it's like looked at me very strangely and said, I think keyboard sounds good. I went, I wouldn't say it sounds good, but okay, fair enough. So we, we, we pretty much did a more or less copy of the, uh, of the demo with, with Maiden, although, I say copy, you know, nothing's ever copied when Maiden does it. It gets kind of like maidenized, you know. Right. Yeah. Then the ending of it has got this weird spoken word bit. Now, again, uh, I said, um, look, you know, it's got this spoken word thing at the end. I said, and that actually makes, in the context of Book of Souls, makes no sense whatsoever because, you know, l- l- let's face it, you know, nobody knows who this guy, Dr. Necropolis, is and Professor Lazarus, and this (laughs) weird story that I'd come up with. It was only on there as a kind of a placeholder to find out if I could do like my best Vincent Price imitation and do some, the the evil of the thriller type thing, you know, (laughs) in the event that we, the album was a concept album, which now it's not, but back in 2014, it might have been. So it was, it was an experiment, and I just stuck it on the end of the uh, demo, you know, again, in Roy's living room. And uh, his little studio he's got there. And I said, well, let me just do this and just I'll make something up and see see what it sounds like if we need to do a, a narration throughout the rest of the album, you know? So you left that on the Maiden song, though. So you said it made no sense, but you left it on there. Uh, well, yeah, no. I mean, it's, Steve was doing all the production bits. I mean, 
<laughs> he, he left it on there. And I was just like, mum, okay. You know, I mean, <laughs> a, a, apropos of nothing, man. I mean, I'm, I'm fine with it. But, you know, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to have it on there. In fact, when I re-recorded the song, I kind of repossessed it. Uh, so I, Steve wanted me to write an extra verse because he thought the song wasn't long enough. So I went, oh, okay, all right. So I wrote an extra verse for it. When I repossessed the song, took the extra verse out, stuck an extra bit of guitar in there, and rejigged the lyrics a little bit. And it worked out that Eternity Has Failed was a more accurate reflection of, of the, the story that was the ongoing story that was going to be in the comic. Because of that, I chopped off the ending of the spoken word ah. and just left it as, my name is Necropolis, and I'm formed of the dead, which is the last line of episode one of the comic. The only Bruce Dickinson can get away with using the word magma in a song <laughs> lyric and making it work. Well, you know, I, I, funnily enough, well, I was in doing something in France for um, a big um, radio station over there, and they wanted like a playlist of stuff. And the, you had to have minimum amount of French content on a playlist. So they wanted some songs in, in, from French artists. And funnily enough, one of them was magma. Uh, which was this absolutely insane French jazz rock band that I saw when I was like 16 <laughs> at school of all places. And they, um, they're delightfully insane, musically ridiculously complex. They sing in their own language. They actually created a language that they sing in. <laughs> Magma. Yeah. Talking about once again, this whole, project of the, of the of the mandrake project you mentioned the comic books and kind of the mystery and the way that you revealed it on social media it's, it's such a classic bruce dickinson thing that, that, to think bigger than just let's put on a solo record talk about the concept of wanting to do a comic and we'll talk about the videos in a bit and all these other great things you've done with it the comic went back to 2014 i was going to do one episode of a comic a very simple story based on funnily enough the track accident of birth so the idea accident of birth the song is about this guy who's separated from his brother at birth. His brother's in hell, tortured in the underworld. The guy survives, though, and is just pissed off against God, the unit, human race, and everything in general. Like, he got survivor's guilt and everything. So that was the basis of Accident of Birth, the song. But given that situation, imagine there was a technology that could reclaim the soul of his brother and bring him back into the here and now. Mm. So that was the idea of the, the basic initial story. And I had, you know, the good guy and the bad guy, and one was Dr. Necropolis, and one was Professor Lazarus. That's as far as I got. And that was the basis to the, the weird spoken word thing at the end of If Eternity Should Fail, which was that title comes from a Dr. Strange episode as well. That was the idea. The album might have been a concept album with a narrator and, and all the usual bells and whistles and, and things that go along with concept albums. But... By the time we'd got done with three years of lockdown, I'd been doing a bit of writing and I'd been doing a bit of brainstorming with a couple of buddies of mine uh, who were Hollywood script writers. Oh. One of them was a guy called Sasha Gervaisi who did the Anvil documentary. Yeah. You know Sasha, right? Yeah. So Sasha and I were doing a, like a, a weekly Zoom with each other, just, just basically just BSing each other and telling stories and, you know, what happened to you last week and all this stuff because like, we were all locked up, couldn't go anywhere, you know. I was involved at the time in doing the Maiden video, Writing on the Wall, and, and very heavily involved in that because I, I basically wrote the script to it. And I mentioned to Sasha that the four biker horsemen of the apocalypse, but we were all Eddies, of course, 
I said that that idea was just based on the fact that I was binge watching that TV show, The Sons of Anarchy. Uh, I was like, yeah, the bikers, the four bikers of the apocalypse. How cool would that be? So that went into the video, and I was just talking to Sasha and saying, you know, and that show, my God, the writing on that show, yeah. Jesus, that guy. What's his name? Kurt Sutter. And Sasha went, yeah, he's my buddy. I, we'll get him on the show next week. On the show, I mean, on the, on the Zoom. You know. <laughs> so we had two or three Zoomies with, with me and Sasha and, and Kurt. Again, just telling each other stories. We actually did come up with a couple of little cool little things that may never see the light of day, but anyway, n- never say never. And I ran the story that I'd now developed for what would be the comic. I ran the story past them and said to Kurt, look, just tell me now, shoot me now, put me out of my misery. Uh, I'm, I'm not wasting my time with this story. And he went, no, 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 it's a really good story. I went, okay, so what do I do with it? Do I like write it up? As I, do, do I turn it to a novel? Do I turn it to a screenplay? Do I send a treatment to Netflix? What do I do? He said, no, man, let's do a comic. I was thinking of doing a comic. I said, but okay. I don't know how you do a comic. So he had done a comic called The Sisters of Sorrow. He basically said, look, I'll help you out here. I'll send you effectively the keys to the kingdom. So he sent me the comic and the script underpinning the comic and the treatment to the comic and the synopsis and the character sketches. And I was just like, this is like a template of this is how you do a comic. So I went back to writing and and, and wrote up all the characters, all the backstory, uh, the synopsis, and realized that it grew from being one episode to about four, and then four wasn't enough, did to eight. And then I was, by the time I get to 12, I'm like, okay, 12 sounds like a good number. Well, 12 is uh, three books, and effectively 34-page comics. Each book is four 34-page comics, <laughs> and 12 of them is, well, do the math, you know. So it, it's, quite, it's quite a substantial finished story. Right. And it's not a superhero story by any stretch of the imagination. It's more like a, a Watchmen type comic. I did that and then went to Z2 because he recommended Z2 as well. He said, you know, you know, that there's this company called Z2. I said, heard of them. I don't know why. Because it turned out they were working with Maiden the whole time. Right. Doing the Peace of Mind book. So I got involved with that. I did Revelations and they assigned me a script writer to write a story with called Tony Lee. And Tony Lee and I got on very well. And so I ran Mandrake past him and he went, that's a great story. Can I be involved in that? I went, yeah, we get on pretty good, don't we? So there's Tony Lee and myself now doing the scripts. I mean, it's my story, my characters, but we're doing the scripts together because comic script is a whole different world to movie script or novel script or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he then suggested the artist, we were looking at a load of artists, Staz Johnson. Staz is outrageously good. I mean, so uh, we now have another great artist on board as well, Peter Kowalski, who is doing uh, wherever we are in backstory mode or we're having a flashback. Peter does those those moments as we go forward in the, in the, the story. There's, there's more, more of those things going on. Um, and what that does is great because, I mean, this is three years of people's lives. I mean, drawing 34 pages every three months of art is like, (laughs) it's a lot. And then finally, the last bit that came on board was Bill Bill Sinkiewicz, who is like complete A-lister artist. I was amazed he was even prepared to to talk (laughs) to me, you know, because I'm like, he doesn't need to talk to me. (laughs) He does does everybody, you know, or he can do anybody he wants, you know. 
But uh, no, he really dug the story and, and dug the kind of the weird philosophy that, that eventually will probably underpin it. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you're talking about this plan for the comic, and I know that the, the tour is coming up, it was quite extensive. Do you talk to, to, to Rod Smallwood and Steve and say, here's what I'm doing? Or do they say, Bruce, we've got two years off? How do you kind of uh, gel the schedules? Um, uh, yeah, I wish I could say there was a plan. <laughs> yeah, there isn't. Uh, I mean, I do see gaps. I know, you know, roughly what we've got planned in, in 25. Gotcha. I say roughly because, you know, th- th- there's a period between this date and this date, you know, it's going to be Maiden World. Mm. When it's not Maiden World, it's up for grabs, you know. Mm. Doing something like, you know, writing the comic book, that's ongoing. doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing. That, that's, that's an ongoing process. Gotcha. Because we are all, I mean, Zed Tour, over in, they're in LA and in New York, and Tony's in London, and I'm on the road. But the stars, I mean, he lives, he doesn't live in London. He lives up, so all this stuff just gets chucked in so you know i'll get the sketch mm. of uh, we've got page page 15 and 16 episode two and there's a sketch and then we go yeah that's really cool great so then it turns into proper ink at that point but we can change it or tweak it at any point up till when it goes to be colored and everything mm. that kind of level of detail is really important uh, but we can do that from anywhere because all of us exist all over the place, you know. So right. Peter um, Kowalski, I think he's in Poland or Czech Republic or somewhere like that, you know. So mm. we've got, <laughs> got people on several continents doing this. Mm. It's the same with animation. It was the same with, with, with the Maiden video. Sure. You know, so, uh, you know, I'd be talking to animators and, oh, where are you? He said, oh, I'm in Peru. So all, all these guys would be in Peru and Brazil and stuff like that. They're all working as animators, even though the, the animation production company was based in London because of lockdown. We're just on a zoom and there's not really any great deal of an added benefit of having production meetings face to face. Cause you spend half your time traveling there. You go, oh, I could have done this at home, yeah. <laughs> you know? but there is, there is a, a lot of benefit in, in seeing the whites of the eyes of the guy or girl that you're going to be working with on a project like this. Cause then you, you, you know, you know, you can, meet somebody on a zoom but you you know what they're like Mm -hmm. you know as as real people you mentioned uh, the writing the wall video so well done uh and also too the fact that that became pretty much a modern day maiden classic in the live sense right out of the gate did you feel that when you were putting this song together and of course the video as well because it was right out of the gate people were singing along with it yeah you hope that that ends up the case uh you never know uh but people really adopted that song Mm-hmm. If I'm honest, I think the video had a lot to do with them adopting it. Why is that? Well, because the the video had so many hooks in it, mm. had so many hooks that, that go with the song. And I just think it reinforced everything. But it is a great sing-along chorus, you know. So, uh, yeah. But what, what got me as well is kind of like mid-tempo. Yes. You know, it's a mid-tempo maiden 
Maiden Classic. The last time we had one of those was Fight of Icarus, you know? Yeah, and the first time you hear it, you're like, all right, and then you hear it again, then the earworm comes in, and then you're, you're yeah. hooked, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the video for Rain, uh, Rain on the Graves, which to me is so hammer, hammer, Absolutely. horror, right? Like, come on. Yeah. Let's... Yeah. Got it. Got it in one. Yeah. <laughs> so t- w- tell me about the concept for that and, and, and how you filmed it. Cause it looked like you guys had a blast doing it. We did that. We did everything in two days. Yeah. Two, two days getting very wet in, uh, in the West of England in Cornwall <laughs> for Christmas. And the turnaround was very fast because Pretty much everything in that video, except for the bit with the mirror and the bit with the the, the, the asteroid in space, <laughs> everything else was actually in camera. In, in other words, it was real, and it was which makes the edit a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. With Ragnarok, we had a lot of VFX visual effects stuff, and that really slows everything down because you have to wait for all that lot to be rendered before they can put it in and before you see it. The same director did Ragnarok that did this one. It was all, Ragnarok was all done in a little bit of a, we've done us backwards. Now, normally you find the director, and then you talk about the concept of the video, and then you shoot that. Right. Well, he was just presented with this. We've got to do a video, and we've got to do it like now. What do you, and I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, you've just done a comic for Ragnarok. I'm, I'm just going to shoot the comic. So he shot the comic, you know, as if it was a script, which I thought was, first of all, I didn't think we could afford that, <laughs> which is why I turned it into a comic. you know honestly if i was backtracking i would have found him first and then we would have like modified the the script slightly but anyway that got done and i think people were blown away by by ragnarok going Mm -hmm. wow oh wow this is like you know obviously not not your normal cheapo cheapo rock videos like a little mini movie yeah but after the sh- after I got done with doing my Emperor Palpatine green screen stuff, <laughs> we, we went down the pub and I said, "Right, next video, let's let's put this together as a basic idea, like right now. Let's let's have a couple of beers and and talk it through." We were doing it, and once somebody from the management was there, you know, and there's two creatives over a beer, and he was starting to look very worried. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure we should, do, I'm not sure we should do comedy. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure about comedy, you know? And I said, all right, one word, thriller. Michael Jackson's thriller. There was a video that was funny. It was witty. It was really cool. Just think thriller. So don't think comedy, think thriller. That's the, the way we're going to treat it. It'll be a little bit tongue in cheek. It'll be a little bit Vincent Price. It'll certainly be a lot hammer horror. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the story you know, a, a preacher goes into a graveyard, meets the devil, and sells his soul for one night to play with a house band of hell. There you go. That's <laughs> it. You know, that's what we shot with a great deal of love for, uh, for Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and Terence Fisher and all those great, great people. Yeah. And you can tell, and that's, and that's kind of what you want from Bruce. Like you said, a little bit of humor, but you play it straight. So it works. Yeah. It's entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. And we did. I'm trying to find it now. Apparently, the the management, the office people put it on TikTok or something. I don't know. The bit where I come out of the coffin, and like in this fake crypt we had downstairs in this basement, we actually got photobombed by a bat. Oh. A real <laughs> bat. So th- this bat comes onto the set and starts flapping around in, in the room. I'm standing there with this bat circling behind me. And I'm saying, you know, I said, this is a non-union bat, dude. What do we do? You know, <laughs> you know. 
Also, too, um, I don't think I'm going too out of line. Your, your vocal on Rain in the Graves, uh, there's a little bit of Ian Gillen in that, some of your phrasing. And you might just do that because it's you at this point, but do you have ever consciously go, oh, that sounds like Gillen? Was- oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, if I'm, if I'm giving a nod to an influence, I mean, I know, I know what influence it is <laughs> that I'm, uh, I'm nodding to, you know. Right. And there's, uh, I mean, all those manic laughs at the end. That's actually straight out of the Arthur Brown uh, world as well, you know. I was thinking that today. Uh, I was working out before this, and I remember one of our, our, our last conversations. You mentioned how much the Arthur Brown, the crazy world of Arthur Brown, influenced you—not just vocally, but also from all the, the the presentation and the outfits and the the costumes. And yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just thinking the same thing. No, absolutely, Arthur Brown. And uh, when we went into coffin mode on it, I was just like, okay, we're channeling, we're channeling this weird guy called Screaming Lord Such as well. <laughs> he used to do that in the, in the 60s and 60s and early 70s. And he would, he would be brought on stage in a coffin, you know, like that. And then they'd stand the coffin upright and then they'd, they'd like open the, the coffin and he'd come out in a top hat and just start, start, <laughs> scre- just start screaming at people, you know, like those, like Screaming Lord Such. Delightfully bonkers. You know, I, I was if he was talking about Ian Gill on uh, gosh, it's probably two years ago now when you did the concert of John Lord's concert for a group and orchestra. Yeah, a what made you want to do that? And B, that how intricate of, of a production was that because you had a 50 60 piece orchestra with you on stage? Yeah, 80. Eight, sorry, <laughs> one, one upper, you want yeah. upper <laughs> 80. No, it was 80. <laughs> See, I was, I was friends with John, John Lord. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we used to go and have like, cause he was a big, he, he, he was, he was very fond of a nice dinner. So we would go out and, you know, and go and have a, a, a good like Sunday roast or something else like that. And by this time he was, um, not in purple anymore and, uh, was doing a, a lot of classical stuff. That was what, you know, he was working on another concerto and, uh, so, um, and we got chatting and he said, look, Hey, maybe, uh, maybe we should. You fancy coming out if I did some classical stuff? Would you come out on the road with me and do some some singing? I went, oh yeah, John, of course, you know <laughs> that's a given. <laughs> so we were planning on doing, uh, I think, Tears of the Dragon and maybe um, Jerusalem, I think, as as orchestrations as part of that show. But then he got sick, and then while he was suffering from pancreatic cancer, there was a project to re-record the concerto another time. A more modern version. Mm-hmm. So the conductor of that was a guy called Paul Mann, and Paul Mann got me in, and and I did some of the vocals, and we just kept in touch. And then out of the blue, he found me up and said, "Look, there's this uh, theatre in in Quebec, in Canada, that is going to do the 50th anniversary for two nights of the concerto. Mm. Do you want to do it?" And I went, yeah, God, it'd be an honor to do that, you know, live. And he said, what we do is we also do like five purple tracks as well, but with the orchestra. I went, and we just take a local band and they come along and, and, and do it. So um, I just turned up to Quebec, did the show and did the purple tracks and it went down, I think, very well. And we just left going, we must do this again one time. And then after that, weird stuff happened with... Um, covid and lockdown and, and and all the rest of it right so there was there were more shows planned but we kind of resumed uh with some shows in brazil and in eastern europe with 80 piece orchestras that we would pick up along the way so the whole thing was sorted out by paul 
and I was effectively uh, I was just I was the hired hand. I was like you know <laughs> I was like you know uh, which was great. And that's where I met Tanya, who's now playing yeah. with me in the project. She's so great. So, so Tanya turned up. The first show we did was actually with Roger Glover on bass. Mm. So that was in Hungary, and we managed to do that somehow during a, a period of lockdown where it wasn't that severe. Mm-hmm. So in Hungary, we ended up going and doing a, an actual proper show with Roger. But then Roger was, you know, tied up with doing Purple stuff. So Tanya came on board, and we just got on great. I said, "What are you doing next year?" He said, "I think Dave is having a year off." I went, "Well, you fancy <laughs> doing it?" So, but we we ended up. We did uh, Jerusalem and Tears of the Dragon with that show, with a full orchestral arrangement. And uh, we finished up doing, I mean, we ended up doing Burn by the end of it. <laughs> just, you know. do, you, do you have to rehearse that with the orchestra or they just know their parts and you just show up and sing it? Every time you change orchestras, you have to rehearse the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Usually by the time, so we, we, we probably used uh, half a dozen different orchestras across like 12 shows. And every time you change orchestra, it's three days rehearsal. Wow. You know, including a full, a full dress rehearsal of the whole thing. Oh, wow. Normally you're talking day one is, is two, three hour rehearsals for the orchestra. So one in the morning, lunch break, then one in the afternoon in which you go through the whole thing with the orchestra. Usually the band doesn't need to sit in on that because it's just straightening out the, the orchestral pieces and, and everything. And then day two, maybe for the second part of day two, you turn up, you just do some intros and outros and maybe some little bits. And then day three, I mean, often we do this uh, day three, we turn up in the morning and we have a full dress rehearsal. And then in the evening, we do the show. Mm. You know, so I was just like, hey, man, this is like working for a living. What's going on? You know what I mean? <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. As we start to wind down, Bruce, you got a, a massive tour and, you know, you have such a worldwide presence. It's going all across all these different countries, nothing in the States yet. But what do you do set list wise? Is it going to be all Bruce solo stuff? I mean, you've got so many great records and songs to do. Yeah. I mean, I've got uh, there's seven albums to pick from now with the new one. Right. So, but I had to make some kind of decision about w- where we're going to go. So I basically picked everything more or less everything from the you know the stuff i've done with roy um so balls to picasso forward so there'll be stuff from action there'll be stuff from chemical there'll obviously be tears of the dragon and there'll be a whole bunch of songs that people would want to hear because they either haven't heard them ever or the last time they heard them was 20 years ago Mm -hmm. at the same time you know i've got a new album and the, the songs sound really good so you know, there'll be, there'll be, I think I'm aiming for like four, four tracks off the new album and the rest of it will be greatest hits. And the other thing about it, I suppose, is that the way the band is and the way the show will be, you know, there's no monsters, there's no pyros. It's yeah. all about, it's all about music, which means that we can swap songs 
in and out. Right. For example, if we've got a spot where we're saying, uh, yeah, we're going to have like, you know, Jerusalem in that point or something else. We say, well, we can do Jerusalem one night. We can do navigate the seas of the sun. The next night we can do similar. So hopefully people will not see exactly the same show every night. I mean, I'm not aiming to go back to, um, you know, 1992 or even 1982. <laughs> this is much more like back to 1972. <laughs> is it is it fun for you to play the smaller venues? I mean, you're playing the Kentish Forum. That's where Fozzie plays when we're in, England, when we're in London. I mean, yeah. obviously, you get Twickenham Stadium and then the Forum. Yeah, well, the Forum's, I mean, the Forum is 2,400. 2,400, yeah. So a lot of the venues in, in Europe are around around that size, but they're all sold out. That's great. So the UK tour is effectively, I think it's still a few tickets left in Swansea, but everything <laughs> else is uh, no, but, but everything else is sold out. You know, there was a temptation to to try and go to bigger venues, and I was like, you know what? No, let's just leave it sold out. Mm. That looks pretty good. We got somewhere to go next time. You know, the same thing in Germany. I mean, Germany they have actually moved Cologne. It was Cologne was a two thousand seater. It's now a four thousand seater. They might do it. Depends on venue availability as well. Right. You know, so a short notice, it's difficult. If something sells out, it's difficult to just swap for the same night sure, sure, sure. in a, a, a big venue. Anyway, I'm really comfortable. I mean, 2,000 people a night is great. And uh, obviously, we're doing some festivals as well. Yeah, it's, it's almost 50 shows. That's what Paul McCartney said. He said, when you sold out, you never know how many tickets you could have sold. And when you don't sell out, you know exactly how many tickets you can sell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very wise. <laughs> the thing I love about this too, Bruce, is, is that you've got such a great solo career is that you can go play these, these, these gigs and you don't have to worry about playing any Maiden songs or whatever. Maybe it's all Bruce stuff, which is all, I mean, I want to hear Book of Fell like right now. Like, let's, yeah. let's do it, man. Come on. Yeah. You know? Well, no, you will as well. Actually. <laughs> I, I think the fact that we sold out. A lot of these places all came very close to selling out a lot of these places when people had hardly heard any music right? and didn't even know who was in the band. It tells me that there's, there's a lot of people that like my solo stuff. Sure, exactly. I honestly think they would be extremely disappointed if I came out and became a karaoke version of Iron Maiden. That would just be, I think that'd be a very retrograde, dumb step. You know, yeah. I've got my own stuff. You know, you want to go see Maiden, you know, we're not going away, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know. We're going to be out and about, and I think people are going to be very happy with, uh, well, what I hope is uh, the next three years but in Maiden World. Last few things, Bruce. I, I um, saw your uh, spoken word show in Tampa here yeah. last year. Yeah. So, so, so great. So much fun. I mean, I've done a few of them myself. You did so many shows. I mean, did you enjoy? Obviously, you did. What was your favorite part about telling these great stories that you told? My favorite part was getting better at telling them. I had go-to stories in the end that i was just like you know okay we're going to drop this one in now yeah it was a kind of the show became a kind of a a bit of a modular approach because as i went through you know, i did about 100 of them but at the run of 55 that i did in america the usa and canada that was a real eye-opener because that was like five shows a week yeah i mean basically it was stand-up about my life mm -hmm. so uh yeah i started learning a few of the little dreaded stand-up techniques which you kind of <laughs> absorb as you're going in you realize that that's a, a cool thing to do and that's not a cool thing to do and i had the first 20 minutes in which i don't think i ever got beyond being born <laughs> and had people laughing about it you know so maiden got mentioned after about an hour and 20 minutes 
Mm-hmm. And then it was like an hour and a half, and it's like, okay, let's um, go and have a little break and come back and do the questions. And the questions were kind of the improv bit, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I got some. I got pretty good at one or two uh, almost comedy sketches, which you just evolve it, and it, it works up and works up, and you you know where to drop the timing and where to have the pause and things like that. Right. And it was quite gratifying, but it was also really nerve-wracking. I can see why stand-up comedians go off the rails because it's <laughs> it's a lot of work too because it's just you, all eyes on you. Oh you yeah, know? and there's there's no script, there's no auto cue or anything else like that. You know, it's it's you. You know, I've got the template in my head, and uh, it's actually scribbled down on a couple of bits of paper as well. Mm-hmm. If I could dig it out, if ever in the, if ever in the future anybody said, "Hey, do you want to go and do yeah, that show yeah. again?" You know, but I don't. I honestly, for the next year. I can't see myself doing doing that again. And if I did do it again, I, I don't think I would do it in, in quite the same way. I might be tempted to incorporate music in it more. Talking about Iron Maiden and just how how universally big the band is on a worldwide basis at this point in time. And there's so many kids at the shows and there's people my age and there's people your age. You really have become, dare I say, a, a heavy metal Rolling Stones as that is for all generations. How, how does that make you feel, this heavy metal band that came out of London and now worldwide families are coming to see your show? No, it's it's brilliant. Honestly, I never imagined that we would end up this way. But now we are this way. It's great because, you know, we've got all the resources we need to do a great show. We're still doing all the songs in the, the original key and everything else, you know, and everybody can still yes. play. And yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, honestly, that is just like a gift from somebody. Go, go pick your deity, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, because I did sign the contract in the video. <laughs> That's true. So it, all of those things, uh, it's, it's a great time to be alive when you're on stage and I'm made. Last question. What's your favorite song or songs on Mandrake? I know they're all your children. Uh, and which ones are you excited to play live? Rain on the Graves is, uh, I think, is just going to be a monster live. The other one I think is really cool. I mean, there's a lot of songs. I'm going to say all of them are really cool. Is uh, Resurrection Men. I love that tune. It's like with a weird Dick Dale surf guitar in the middle. Like, <laughs> so it sounds like the beginning of a Tarantino movie that goes into this weird Hawkwind vibe that then goes into sort of like heavy, heavy, heavy bass, like Geezer Butler mode. I mean, I think I just think it just tickles people's imagination when you hear that song, because it's unexpected twists and turns, you know. Right. The other tune, which I think is standout, the the last three songs on the record, um, Shadow of the Gods is amazing, but I think Sonata is probably one of the most extraordinary things I've ever recorded and more remarkable for the fact that it was almost one take stream of consciousness when we did it, yeah, 25 years ago. There were no words, there were no lyrics. There were no words, there was no tune, there was nothing. It was just this bed that Roy had done 10 minutes of ambient stuff and a drum machine. And uh, I went in the studio and and basically created the lyrics on the spot and sang them on the spot. 80% of that track is that take, which is, I don't think that's ever happened before or since, you know, but it's kind of cool. Well, Bruce, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm always excited to hear about your projects. You're my favorite polymath that I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can grow 
I can, you know, is that one of those things where you can grow fruit under black plastic tunnels? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. As long as yeah. the droppings from the hangman yeah. uh, come yeah. down on top of you. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. All right, mate. All the best. Congratulations. Yeah. We'll see you on the road. Yeah. On the road. Yeah. Two right. horns. Four <laughs> horns. No, where's my other horn? Lost it. Down, <laughs> it's down, down there. there. Down there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. All the best, buddy. Cheers, man.